Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former HBO and NBC Universal executive Kelly Edwards about becoming a writer. Bronze Studios' David Davoli discusses the company's rapidly expanding TV business. Exec producer Kristen V. Carter on a new Discovery Plus documentary series examining black male stereotypes. And Lighthouse Studios' Claire Finn on how streamers like Netflix, Amazon and Apple TV Plus have changed the animation game. As a television executive, Kelly Edwards' career spanned roles at HBO and Comcast NBC Universal, overseeing numerous divisions and championing emerging artists and diverse talent. At Fox, she developed Living Single, Clueless and the Wild Thornberries, and at UPN nurtured Girlfriends, The Parkers and Malcolm in the Middle. Now, with her own writing deal at HBO, she spoke to Michael Picard about her journey across the television divide and discusses her new book, The Executive Chair, in which she serves up a writer's guide to television development. Well, my name is Kelly Edwards, and I am a writer on a show called Our Kind of People. I'm also a former executive. I've been in the business for just decades, and uh, I came out of the feature world and then into the television world somewhere in the early 90s and worked for Fox and for UPN, where I headed up comedy development and then did a stint for a while at NBC Universal in the diversity division and the corporate diversity side, which was sort of a, a massive departure for me. And uh, I produced television shows and uh, then I went to HBO to run the writers and directors programs, a number of other creative artist programs over there for the last uh, seven years. And then I rolled off to take a, a deal with HBO uh, as a writer. So I've been doing the writing thing since uh, since mid-2020. So I've been doing a lot of uh, skipping around the business, trying a lot of different things. I think I call myself the queen of pivoting because every six years or so, I completely blow up my career and do something completely random and different. But it's given me a really great 360 of the business. And I wrote this book called The Executive Chair at Top of 2021. It actually came out at the end of last year. And um, and it was sort of a summation of all of the, the learnings that I'd had through all of the different aspects of the business. And I wanted to put it into a book because I felt like, you know, when I'm talking to people in at conferences and festivals, you only get to talk to so many people at a time. And yet the information feels like it needs to be heard by a lot more people who want to get in the business and make it a little less scary and, and a little bit easier for people to make those moves into it. Yeah. And and so how have you found life as as a writer, you know, having been within the business and, and on one side of the fence, how, how is life for you? now um you know as a writer pitching ideas and and writing on a show it's it's glorious and it's frustrating all at the same time so i i wake up honestly every day excited because you know when you're doing when you're writing and you have a another you know day job you're trying to fit your writing into the little nooks and crannies of your of your schedule so i was always getting up at 4 30 in the morning and writing until eight o'clock when my family woke up and that was the only quiet time that i had and then the rest of the day you're off to the races and now every day I get up, I can get up whenever I want. I can nap whenever I want, but I'm still working just as hard, but I'm doing it, you know, and enjoying the characters that I'm writing and working out the script, you know, whatever the, the story issues are. And it's just a different kind of enjoyment. I really love it. I love my job before. It was really great because I was helping people realize their dreams, but now I really get to spend a lot of time focusing on me. So it's been a revelation. I really, really love it, but it's, it can be frustrating. You know, you're out there pounding the pavement, really trying to get that 
that next thing and make sure that you're relevant and make sure that you still have material. So you can't really ever rest on your laurels or just stop and, and really take a breather every now and again. I did take yesterday off though. For the, and it was like the first time in a long time that I didn't feel like I had to push myself. But um, but yeah, it's it's a challenge, but it's a challenge in a good way. And I mean, I was interested to, to ask you how you now look back at perhaps um, the way you might have spoken with writers, um, you know, when you're on a commissioning on a, on a network level. And, and do you sympathize now with maybe some of the challenges they were facing talking to you about, you know, pitching ideas and things? Or, you know, how, how does your experience on on that side in the boardroom, you know, fare for you now? You're a writer and, and going right. the other way. Oh, yes, yes. But I think I had a lot of that insight into it when I was producing. Um, I had become, I think, a much more compassionate listener and a, and a much better advocate when I was producing. And I had a number of other writers that I was working with at the same time. So we were dealing with, you know, uh, coming up with a great pitch, um, really working it and then taking it into a, a network or a studio. And then, you know, when you get those passes, you have to rework it. You have to figure out well, what didn't, how, why didn't it sell? Why, how do I do it better? And I knew, and I knew at the time that writers are very fragile people. You know, you just sort of know that your job as a writer is to lay your, your soul bare for other people to criticize and stomp all over. So I knew then, and that was probably back in around 2000, 2000, I don't know, 2003, 2006, I sort of realized that there was this other aspect of it that you really have to be careful of when you're, especially when you're a buyer, when you're a buyer at a network and someone comes in to pitch, you have to remember that that person has spent a lot of time working on that pitch. And if that pitch is terrible, then they still worked just as hard on it as if the best pitch in the world came in. And so I think that being compassionate about that was was something that I learned early on. I think being on the other side of it where you're doing the actual work. And I do feel like, you know, in some aspects, writing is like, a, it's just a giant puzzle and trying to make the, the right pieces fit. And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Sometimes you have to, you know, unassemble it before you can reassemble it. So it takes a lot of work mentally and emotionally to do something, I think, that that you are proud to put your name on. And doing it from the, the writing side, you only have so many emotional hours in a day before you completely fall apart. So I do find that I have to figure out what's my, the best optimal way for me to work. And also, so to try to box that in so that other people understand that as well. And they're not asking too much of me that I can't deliver. But yeah, it's hard. It's, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's easy. It's a great job, but it can be exhausting too. Yeah, I yeah. think the other part of it too is when I'm on a show, when I was on a show last year, I was on it from May, end of May to the beginning of December. That's a whole different muscle too. When you're, you're supporting a production where you're bringing your problem solving to the table every single day and you have multiple people who are coming at you trying to, you know, ask questions and, you know, how can you rewrite this, this little bit? And, you know, can I say this word versus that word? So there's a lot of other pieces to the writing puzzle that I feel is um, it's, it's very, very exciting to be a part of, uh, but it can be really draining as well. You know, what, what do you make of the way the industry is shaping up at the moment in terms of all the networks are, are changing that, you know, the way they do business, there's a lot of vertical integration. So they're, you know, t- closer to their own studios than ever before the streamers are, uh, I'm not sure if they're still disruptors or, or they're, you know, they're just continuing to disrupt, uh, right. the, you know, the, the the way we used to do business. I mean, what do you just make of, of that? And, and where are the opportunities now, perhaps for writers and, and new voices? Well, I do think that that's the exciting part of the business is that because there's so much uncertainty, we're still unstable at the moment and people are looking for content everywhere. I think it's a really good time to either make your content or get it out there. You know, people are writing more books to, to create IP and graphic 
graphic novels and making short films and putting up their plays. So I do think that there's a lot of other ways other than the traditional, hey, I'm going to write a script and then send it in to someone to bless me or not bless me. You know, just do it. Get out there and do it. Be the Michaela Cole of your group. So I do think that there's a lot of opportunity. You have to be open to finding it. I was just talking to a friend on last week who um, we're going to do something that's like an audio drama. So, you know, I was I was really happy about that. And so his viewpoint is, you know, TV is the land of no and audio drama is the land of yes. So come to where it's yes. And I think that that's something that wouldn't have existed 10 years ago. So I do think that we have a lot more opportunity. There's a lot more need for content and a lot more need for people who have really strong ideas and characters that they could bring to the table. But I do think you're right. You're, this this business is is very, um, I, I liken it to, you know, the a quicksand. It's like you're, the, the sand is, is shifting underneath your feet at all times. And so it's really challenging to know where it's going and, and who is doing what that I don't think anybody's figured it out yet. I think you're right with all the vertical integration. But if you remember back in the 2000s, the late 1990s, that's when all that started with the FinCEN agreement. It was like there was all this consolidation. So if you had a deal at CBS Productions or at the time it was Paramount Productions, then you were you're pretty much only guaranteed to be selling to CBS. That's where my deal was. So but it was like that everywhere. NBC had it had its own NBC studios and they really wanted you to work in line so that the money stayed within the family. And if you had a, you came in with an independent like a Sony or a Warner Brothers at the time, they would ask you to partner with their internal studio. So there was always this vertical integration happening for the last two decades. But now with the streamers, it's like uh, it's like someone's thrown all the marbles up in the air. We just don't know where they're all going to ping pong and, and land. They're trying to align with their linear, you know, broadcasts arm. Not nobody's really sure if you're developing for one or the other or both at the same time. And I think eventually we will have to see what's what becomes of it. You know, I think we still need the linear platforms, but the linear platforms might end up not being the place for the scripted content. Who knows? It might just all be behind some sort of a paywall. I, I think it's going to be a really exciting time in the next few years to see what sticks around and what doesn't stick around and, and who are the winners. We cut the cord a couple of years ago and I'm, I feel like I'm now, now piecemealing and probably spending, if not more money on, you know, the individual things than, than I did when I was paying $160 for my direct TV. <laughs> yeah. There'll be streamer cutting soon when it'll be the next <laughs> <laughs> phenomenon. Um, and I mean, do you, do you think that uncertainty then is, is the chief kind of challenge in, in the business at the moment? Just no one is quite sure where they'll be in six months or are, are there kind of bigger things in, in the industry that are affecting everyone and, and those universal threats? I don't know. I feel like if you look at the um, agency mergers that they're having between ICM and CAA, that's big. And uh, and so I just don't know. I feel like we, in the last few years, with all the consolidation with the Disney-Fox merger, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of major institutions completely change overnight. And I think the people inside those institutions are very confused about well, where am I and what do I, what am I doing and where am I sitting and what are we trying to go for? So I don't know. I think it's, it's anybody's guess. It's a little bit like you have to be you know, a magician to know what's going to happen in the future. I think you just, all we can do is be ready with our ideas. That's the one thing that never changes is that people want good story regardless. And you will find out where you're going to push that to and in what format you're going to push it to once you get there. And and if you have a good story, I mean, you, you mentioned IP there. I mean, how easy is it to get that story away? Do you need, if you're a new voice, do you need a, an experienced showrunner attached to the project? Do you need IP? You know, what are kind of some of those entry points 
points that people need to get past in order to to get a, a pitch meeting or a, a pilot commission, you know, to get up the ladder? That's a really good question. I think that I'm seeing a trend, obviously, towards IP. We've we've seen that trend quite a while now. I think it is a lot harder than it was before to just go out with a good idea. I think that you know packaging is making a difference. There are particular streamers that are very very star driven, and I think you could just see that by what they've got up up there. But I think that there's also some of these things where, you know, when you look at some of the things that are coming out of animation and you go, well, this is a story I haven't heard before. It feels like it's a completely un-IP, no, you know, no IP behind it kind of thing that's that's sort of pushing through the clutter. So I kind of feel like there, there may be avenues around the IP thing. But I also feel like you can create IP. If you think about some of the IP that's been made into shows lately, if you think about Queen's Gambit or uh, Handmaid's Tale, they were books from the 80s that nobody was really looking for. And all of a sudden they became something spectacular they became very relevant so you know i feel like if you want to do a twist on a something in the public domain that people haven't heard of before i think there's ways to create ip around existing ip or to get ip that maybe can just find a new fresh life but then you could also this isn't the day in the age where you could you could write a book and go sell it on amazon and that's ip you know you can go to i think there's a the website's called fiverr and you can find an artist you can go find an artist and have an artist create your book children's books are getting made into movies. Look at the commercial that that became Ted Lasso. So I do think that we can come at it from a lot of different places and find different ways to, you know, different entry points. You just have to be open to it. You have to be really clever about it. I don't think you take one road and just decide, oh, well, they didn't buy it that way. I'm just going to go home. You know, you can twist it into something new. You can find a different way in. I think the other part of that is also just who do you know? So how do you maneuver through this business using the, the tools you do have? You got to really shake the trees on that one. Is TV still made kind of the same way it's always been? Or is that changing as well beyond the way that the broadcasters are changing? Yeah, I think that the great thing about this is that it's still a camera and a face, right? <laughs> Essentially, yeah. it's a script, a camera and uh, and an actor. So I don't think that that part has changed significantly. You know, when people kept talking about digital, the digital age, I kept thinking, well, it's you're still making television. You're still making movies. It's just where you are showing them that the distribution has changed, but not the manufacturing of that. So a lot of the key elements are still going to remain the same. You're still going to need all those crew. You're still going to need that great piece of work. And then you're going to have to have that actor who's going to bring that, those words to life uh, and the director, obviously. So I don't think that that's changed fundamentally. What has changed for me on the writing side as I'm going in and pitching to people is the terminology and the language that they're using is different. And we're now coming to this from a more tech savvy and driven place that uses different words than we used before. But I think that's also, that changes, you know, just with, with how we talk just in generally. There was changes all along. They just seem a little bit less pronounced in the in the past than they are now. But I do feel like people are asking for different things. And the one thing that I think is the most um, significant is with broadcast television, people showed up once a week, and they had to the shows had to be you know spectacular enough or or hammocked well between other great tentpole shows so that you would show up every week. But it was an, it was a very episodic kind of world, 
Now we're getting more into the streamers are need you to figure out, well, how do you binge? How are we going to get somebody to binge? And how do we get them to binge beyond three episodes to, you know, eight to finish out the eight episodes? That's their mark for success. And so they, they look at, well, how many people stayed? When did they drop off? You know, are they going to transfer over to the next thing that we're trying to get them to click on to that's very similar? So they have different variables rather than the, the traditional broadcasts, which looks at ratings in a different way. They have other markers. And I think each one of those markers is probably different for each show, but it's how well is it going to do overseas and, you know, how many people are coming to the party. So it's a, it's a different metric, but they have to get you to keep going. And so that's the difference between, you know, now and the broadcasts where we were all going to broadcast and everybody's going to streamers. They're going to premium content. And those are all, well, how do we get you to, you know, what is the serialized nature, even of a comedy, which typically haven't been serialized. So how do you keep that serialized nature of that television show to the point where I need you to click and keep clicking? So if you notice, almost everything now has a cliffhanger and it's not necessarily a dun-dun-dun cliffhanger, but it's a something interesting is going to happen, but you have to stay to find out how it's going to play out. We'll give you a little tidbit at the end, but then we need you to get to the next episode so that you understand how to resolve that piece. So I think they think that's the biggest, the biggest significant difference that I've seen, which is very, very challenging to come up with when you're the when you're a writer. Yeah, I was going to ask, what's that like in the writer's room where every episode you need to find a way to con- keep continuing the story, I guess, uh, you know, maybe it's not quite as necessary as it was in the old broadcast days when you'd want shows to, to run for 100, 150 episodes, but still you want a show to run for a few seasons, that you, you know, hopefully if it's successful. So are you constantly looking for ways to continue the show or do you have to kind of balance that with, okay, well, if we do end after one season, two seasons, then we want it to be satisfying for the viewers. Is that a kind of a trade-off or a balance in there somewhere? <laughs> I don't know that anybody, I think I, I would venture to say that everyone wants to get that second season, that they're they're not looking to close off anything. And I think if you're trying to get that next season, you need to convince people that you're going out with enough momentum to carry them into this, the following season and to figure out, well, what's happening with these characters, you know, next year. But I do think that I, I would just finish watching the uh, the Sex and the City reboot, you know, and just like that. And I thought they did a really good job keeping the momentum going, you know, even though it's a weekly drop, I was feeling as though there's a really wonderful pace to it. And it makes you, because you know these characters and you you know that they're getting into these sticky situations and then getting out of them, that there is this way to sort of split the difference and have it feel like a, a standalone episode where they're dealing with a particular topic, but then you're going to carry over into the next episode to see how it plays out. So I do think that some people are figuring it out. Others not so much. <laughs> but that's the that's going to be the learning curve, you know, how we figure this out. And so you mentioned, you obviously mentioned you, you've written this book and it's, I imagine there's, uh, you know, lots of eye-opening uh, little nuggets of information that, you know, writers would love to, to glean from that. I mean, um, I don't want you to spoil the book, I guess, but I mean, what are some of the, the topics maybe or, or the, the tips and tricks perhaps that you, uh, you reveal about, you know, how writers can best go about kind of cracking the business and, and getting getting their shows on air. There are so many, so <laughs> many tips. So um, like I said, this is this came out of me going to a lot of different events and speaking to people who would ask the same questions over and over again. How do I get in? How do I stay in? What do I need to show up? You know, how, can I do it from some place that's not Los Angeles or New York? And so these were, I like to call it the cheat sheet to sort of say, yeah, there are ways that you can do all of that. First, let's, I do a whole section on laying the groundwork. So this is how we have traditionally looked at ratings and um, and research. And this is what our calendar year look, look looks 
like on the broadcast side, but on the streaming side and on the premium cable side, we don't have those parameters. You know, people are developing material all year round. I do have a chapter there on why people do lunch and, you know, how important it is to create and foster relationships because the entertainment business is really like a very small town and everybody knows each other. And if they don't know you, you're really one or two phone calls away from knowing someone. So it's very, very close knit group. So that's why who you know is very, really important. And how to you, how do you then network? So I do have some tips on networking. I have tips on uh, pitching, uh, what kind of elements you need in order to pitch well, why, when, when something goes bad, you know, how do you course correct? I love the chapter on, on your game plan and how to come up with a mission statement and how to, um, how to craft your own personal narrative, because you're always asked in every meeting, you're asked, Hey, tell me about yourself. And that's where people sometimes have a hard time speaking about themselves because they haven't created kind of the story and it doesn't have to be a lengthy story. It can just be, you know, seven points that you hit that give them an idea of why you versus somebody else. And then there's some there's a there's something that I think that I rarely talk about in, in things like this because it's just it never occurs to me. But there's this whole section on here are the, the shows that you should have watched in order to, you know, to really be conversant in this industry. As an executive, there were certain shows that we were always referencing. Now those shows will change because as times change and things become more popular, you will always add to this list. But there are basic historical shows that everybody talks about. Everybody talks about I Love Lucy, and everybody talks about, you know. You have to know the names Ozzy and Harriet. You have to know, you know, NYPD Blue, LA Lot. Like there are just certain shows that everybody references as, you know, Breaking Bad is one of them, was the benchmark of excellence for this kind of show. And I think that sometimes emerging artists, sometimes newer people come in and they haven't done their homework and they have to really understand that the people who they're talking to are fanatics about television and movies. And we've read everything and we've seen everything and we've read a lot of books and we've, we've really studied the forms and we understand stories. Story. And if you come in and you haven't done that kind of work and we talk to you and mention Mary Tyler Moore show and you go, what is that? Then we're like, you're, we're, we've moved on. So just come to the party with a baseline of the history and then you're you're not going to be you know behind the eight ball. Those are the big chapters, I think. Yeah. So there's a lot, a lot of personal development there. So it's not just coming to the show with a, with a good idea, with a good pitch, a good one sheet story. It's, it's knowing the business as well yourself and being able to sell yourself perhaps as well. Exactly. That's a huge part of it because mm. how are they going to know that you're terrific if, if you don't tell them you're terrific? <laughs> and you have to have some sort of, when you're pitching, especially, they're going to look for your personal connection to the material. So you really have to be able to say, hey, this is my background. This is why I should be writing this. This is why it, it matters so much to me and I, why I'm going to bring the, the best of myself to this project. So you have to be able to, to talk about yourself in that way anyway. What are the, some of the shows you're watching at the moment that you might be re referencing in five or 10 years? years as you should have seen that show oh my gosh I, well first of all i've watched i watch everything so <laughs> i'm just going to try to think of uh i've just binged uh let's see the first few episodes of peacemaker i'm not sure i'm going to be talking about that in 10 years <laughs> but it certainly was fun um boba fett i'm i'm in the middle of that i have to catch up because i've not kept pace uh, but certainly the sex and the city thing i think we, we're going to still be talking about that i think that that's one of the few reboots that has done really really well but i try to see as much as I can't. I just binged uh, the entire season of Reacher last night. So I go back and forth to every
everything I've seen. I thought Hacks was great. Obviously, Ted Lasso. There's a lot of good stuff on Apple right now that I was not expecting that I'm I'm finding that I'm that I'm really enjoying. So uh, I think it's called Suspicion. Is it is the break comes from yeah the UK. Yeah. Um, After Party seems really cool. I've been watching that. So there's been a lot of stuff, but I try to see everything. I try my best. I think the the Equalizer reboot. I think that they did a really good job with it. So I've been where I've been watching as much as humanly possible because I do want to make sure that I'm in the conversation and I'm not, you know, showing up someplace and not having watched something great. And then of course, you know, Oscars are out. So I'm looking at all the, the Oscar films. There's a lot to see. There is absolutely. Wow. That's fantastic. I mean, anything else you wanted to mention, Kelly, we haven't touched on any burning issues that um, you wanted to discuss. I think the only thing that I'd like to leave with is that, um, you know, I do think it's a good time to be in the entertainment business. It'll never go away. And I think we saw during COVID how important it was, how much it connects us, how much it helps us through some of the difficult times and how much we desperately need entertainment. Uh, I also want to make sure that I impart the fact that we, the entertainment industry does not exist without somebody coming from some random place and creating something. You know, people aren't always born in Hollywood. And so, you know, when we think that, oh my gosh, it's too hard to do this, or I can't make, sh- I can't get from wherever I am to Los Angeles. Now we're in a virtual world. There's, there's really much more of an opportunity to make those inroads. There's social media. You can get, you can create a brand. You can, you know, you can write and post your short stories online if you want and show people that you, you, you have what it takes. So I do think that for those of us who are desperate to be, to let that creativity out of our, you know, psyche and, and, and into the universe, it's going to happen no matter what we're going to do it some sort of way. There's like this need to express ourselves. And when we shut it down and we stop doing it and and we wonder what if, then of course it's never going to go anywhere. But if you just give yourself the chance, the opportunity, we need more brilliant people and interesting thinkers and emotion that that sort of carries and connects us. So uh, we only get that if more people come to the party. So I know it's hard to sometimes think about that. And we all have these dreams of, you know, winning that Oscar or winning that Emmy. That's really not the most important part. And those kinds of accolades go away, you know, the next day after you've woken up with your hangout, not that I've had an Emmy or an Oscar, but the next day you, you wake you wake up out of that party, you still have to do the work. So it's not really about being the Oscar winner or the Emmy winner. It's really about, do you have this thing that needs to get out of you? And how am I going to get it out of me? So I do say, I do want to encourage people to, to try it. You know, I've seen so many Cinderella stories play out so many where you'd go, this is the most unlikely person who's going to make it or to get a show on the air or to be a writer on a show. Look at me. I was a, my parents were dentists, you know, we didn't have any connections to the entertainment business. So if I could do it, anybody can do it. It takes a little bit of guts, a little bit of insanity. It takes your, you know, all of your free time, but one way or another, we're going to write or create, you might as well get paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly Edwards speaking with Michael Pickard. Now over to C21 North America editor Jordan Pinto to introduce our next interview. Founded 12 years ago, the Canadian studio and financier Bronze Studios was focused squarely on feature film and animation before expanding and moving full force into television around four years ago. David Devoli, president of television based in New York, discusses Bronze's slate of TV originals including Kin, Dirty Black Bag, The Defeated and the UK remake of the French comedy Call My Agent as well as how the company's business model for financing projects allows it to retain greater control over the IP and gives the creator more control over the project they want to make. 
David, so um, Bron was founded in 2010 um, with an initial focus on feature films and animation. And I, I think that remained as the company's focus for several years until maybe the mid 2010s when the company started thinking about TV. Um, actually, when I was researching for this interview, I saw a story with Bron co-founder Aaron Gilbert. And um, he said, I think in 2018, he said that only about 5% of Bron's um, projects were TV projects. And the plan was to kind of expand that significantly to, I think he said by 2021, maybe 50% or it would be closer to 50-50. Yeah. So maybe you can take us a bit inside uh, what's been going on in the Bron uh, TV business over the last few years. I, I think we've at least hit the 50% threshold, if, if not more, probably more. I think part of that was by uh, desire, part of it was, or design, and part of it was necessity due to the pandemic where, where the theatrical market just collapsed and, and TV became really the only medium to which you could exploit stories. So, um, you know, my group, which uh, started back, I think it was somewhere 2018, 2019, uh, maybe even a year earlier, we had the benefit of having a pipeline of projects that were ready to go uh, once the pandemic hit and TV was kind of where people were placing their energies. And then on top of it, uh, the shows that we had in the pipeline were all international shows. And when the U.S. virtually shut down production, but there were places around the world that were saying, you know, we're still going to move forward. We got the benefit of that. So we were able to make shows in Ireland, Italy, Spain, Morocco, and uh, in the U.K. Let's dig into some of those projects a little bit. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of international stuff has been going on, especially during the pandemic. Yeah, well, I suppose two questions to that. One will be to, to highlight some of the shows. And secondly, I think you said that you had a pipeline of shows ready to go when the pandemic hit, which is kind of certainly different than uh, how a lot of people have done it. So yeah, how have you uh, been able to... Well, I mean, the, you know, the, te the television pipeline, I mean, development in terms of having projects that have uh, gestated enough so that there's scripts and cast and talent, et cetera, and a production plan where they were they were about to go anyway. But because of the feature market evaporated and the U.S. market evaporated, a lot more people or partners or whatnot on the international side said, well, let's put some more capital towards TV, especially international TV. And that kind of gave us the boost that we needed to plant the flag and say, we're going to go make these three shows. Now, we had already had that experience on The Defeated, which we made in Prague a couple of years earlier. But to, to move forward with Kin, which we started, I think, in in July 2020, so it was probably just a few months after the pandemic really started to take off. We we planted the flag to start that show. I think we had uh, something like an October start date, 2020. And by the time we hit the January marker, we were the only show in Ireland that was still in production. We were kind of like a, <laughs> a single boat floating through the water uh, trying to get into port, but it was uh, it was a great experience nonetheless. So that was The Defeated, Kin, and sorry, was, that, was there one more project you were mentioning? Yeah, the Defeated well. was the one we made in Prague in 2019. Kin was, is an Irish crime drama that we made with Peter McKenna in uh, Ireland, which aired on AMC Plus last year. We then started production on a spaghetti Western called That Dirty Black Bag with a co-producing partners at Palomar. And uh, we also sold that to AMC Plus, which will hopefully be airing sometime this year. And then we made the Call My Agent UK remake in London 
um, which we just wrapped on and are delivering to Amazon Prime and Sundance Now. That was, you know, 24 hours of television in, in the last uh, 12 to 15 months. And the, the financial model is an interesting one, I think, that you uh, that Braun Television uses. Um, if I understand it correctly, it's it's the case that the, the projects were developed, deficit financed, and then produced all under lockdown. Could you talk a bit about, I suppose, the, the, the model, the, the financing model that uh, Braun uses and how maybe that's different than uh, what we might typically see in the market? Well, we're very flexible. There's not one way to finance anything. And our international model is just one way to which we finance shows. It does have its origins in independent film finance. The model is not unique in that way. It needs broadcasters to be in place in order to do that so that you have kind of an anchor and then pre-sales. Hopefully you can bring in some partnerships that want to get in early on the project for their own territories. And then obviously you shoot somewhere like Ireland or Italy or London or Prague, where there's a very significant soft dollar contribution to the budget. And then, you know, Braun as a financier with our production finance partners, we come in and we gap the rest of the, the budget. And we do that. We have done that. And again, it's not a pattern that we say, this is the only way to do it. It's just on those four shows, we did do it without US distribution in place before we hit the green light button to make those shows. Each one was sold at a different time period during the production process. But what controlling the green light allows us to do is set the flag for when we want to make a show and on what parameters. And we work towards that flag so that we're the ones driving the narrative in terms of when a show goes and on what terms. So we found that to be very empowering. It also uh, allows us to own the asset in terms of building a library value on those shows where we're seeing obviously the proliferation of streamer-owned content or cable-owned content or whatnot, where you're working just as a non-writing EP and you don't own any of the IPs, thus you're not building library value for your balance sheet. And so we think that's quite attractive in the long term for bronze value. And I think the last thing is on the creative side, we're able to retain much of the creative approval rights so we can really protect the voice of our creators, which is one of the most important things at Braun as a talent first company is to make sure that we're protecting those creators and they get to make the shows that they want to make. Whereas if we were in a traditional system, we might have a bit more interference on the creative. Braun is obviously a, a very large company with uh, you know operations all over and, and um, it's very diversified business in terms of content. Um, how does the television uh, business and the television divi division fit into the wider company? Uh, we are our own thing. I, I have a team of eight people on the Braun TV side, but we interact with every unit at the company, including film and animation, as well as marketing, business affairs, production, accounting, finance, uh, strategy. So uh, we, we wouldn't be able to do what we do without the entire company. And uh, while we are a small little unit, each one of those departments plays a part in being able to produce and deliver both physically and legally all of these shows. So, you know, we're, we're a true studio in that form and that we can pay for the development of shows, which allows us to get a foothold in IP that we're really eager to get into, uh, develop that stuff with one of the best creative teams in the business, in my opinion. I'm, I'm biased, of course. But then, like I said, we can raise the money and set the start dates. And then our production team can physically produce the shows. And then we have a very robust post-production and delivery team, both on the physical asset side and on the legal side, to where our um, clients are trusting that we'll be able to deliver on time and of a certain quality bar. So the answer 
to your question is we work very, very closely with the wider company. How do you assess the broader scripted marketplace in 2022? And where do you see the future opportunities for high-end scripted productions and production studios like Brom? I think we're in a really great place. We're primed to capitalize on the efforts that we've done over the last two and a half years in terms of being a pioneer in the international uh, television marketplace. Obviously, we're seeing a lot of movement in that space now. I'm not saying we were one of the first to do it, but we were one of the first kind of indie smaller companies uh, without uh, a big corporate parent to be out there taking risks on shows in the way that we did. And I think that that now has created a, a sort of reputation for us to be able to do that on other shows. And now, of course, with the Braun releasing unit, we are out there selling those shows to buyers around the world, not just to our initial clients that uh, participated in the in the early stages of the production and, and the sale, like the, the AMC and Amazons. But now with our distribution team, we're out there selling territory by territory and making sure that we extract the value for for our investors and uh, protect the upside and also the ability to get into second and third seasons on all our shows. So I think that where we're headed is that there is a place in the international market where there's a sort of discontent with the streamer proliferation in territories where perhaps maybe... uh, Uh, budgets are getting smaller, margins are getting smaller, and we can come in and say to a local broadcaster who is a competitor of the streamer to say, hey, listen, we'll come in and partner with you, be that show, raise your budgets a bit, bring in talent, which is another thing that I think we have a skill set that comes from our heritage on the film side, is we can bring the talent, we can let the agencies know that we're going to be backstopping that talent if and when things go wrong, that they can rely on us to make sure that their talent is protected and also have the ability to come into the U.S. and to some of the other big markets and sell those shows. So I think there are a lot of people in Europe and other um, jurisdictions that maybe don't have the same reputation or contacts that we do in the U.S. and now sometimes other places like the U.K. And so they're saying, hey, let's partner with Braun for the talent, for the diversity of the way the studio works in terms of development, creative production, financing, delivery, but also on the sales side now where we can bring a U.S. client onto the show, hopefully for a larger sale than maybe they would be able to do on their own. And now with the releasing arm, we're able to sell into the territories around the world. I'm, I'm very excited about where Braun stands in this, this very exciting marketplace where international television seems to be uh, really in vogue at the moment. Um, just a, a quick follow-up question on Braun releasing. Is that a relatively new brand or has that been something that's was something around, but that was more involved on the film side. And now doesn't that now just include uh, a lot of the TV titles that are starting to come through? The brand was originated last year in terms of its presentation to the world as an operating unit. And obviously Jonathan Keir on the film side is overseeing those film efforts. And Gary Morenzi is consulting for us on the TV side. And uh, yes, we have a small team at the moment, but it's a very aggressive team and we are out there talking to buyers, selling, and uh, hoping that that unit really grows as we move forward and develop more content, not not just on the scripted side, but on the unscripted side, on the animation side, and also obviously continuing our um, robust film history as well. So uh, we're very excited about the Braun releasing unit. And then particularly with uh, Call My Agent, That Dirty Black Bag, and Kin, uh, all of 
which are in a really exciting place in terms of having high profile broadcast clients in the US, UK and other big territories. Now we're about to make a very deliberate effort into other territories with those three titles and really kind of take on the road what we think will be hopefully robust sales on all three. You mentioned the unscripted uh, part of the business there. Is that also an area that you oversee? I don't oversee it, although it's like a sister division where I help out as much as possible, particularly on the selling side. Um, We have a very strong creative team over there. Brenda Gilbert, uh, who's also one of the co-owners of Braun, oversees that with Josh Miller. Aaron Gilbert, our other owner, is uh, obviously really involved as well. But, uh, you know, it's all hands on deck when it comes to selling. We, We really just try and find the right partnership. And, you know, selling unscripted is, is a little bit different than scripted. It's different execs, different companies, different mandates and that sort of thing. But, you know, we, we help out as much as possible, our colleagues over there on the unscripted side. David, what are some of the long-term goals for Braun Television as you build out this, um, what, what essentially is quite a young part of the company uh, and as you look to the future with it? Well, I think, you know, <laughs> in our very early stage of, of the division, we got four shows made and we got three, uh, we were producing three shows at one time last year or between October 2020 and uh, late 2021. And that was pretty incredible. And we did it with kind of a thin staff and kind of learning as we go in terms of what would be needed to build a TV division. I think the goals are certainly to build on that, both in terms of volume and in terms of working with the top creators in the world. And so ideally, each year we're making more and more shows like we'd like to make five shows this year and maybe seven shows next year. Um, So I think that's important. I do also oversee the domestic side of the group and that remains to be a central to the efforts. So we have a domestic team in LA who is developing content that is only intended for the US marketplace and we'll sell that in that manner. So I think we would grow those two divisions, one, the international side to the domestic side and really just build on the volume and the output. I think the sales side will continue to grow. I think we'd like to really build out a proper sales team so that we have manpower in some of the big territories to to really be uh, servicing our clients. And I think on the creative side, it's just we really want to build on what we've done and just start working with some of the great creators that are out there, particularly on the international side, that might be interested in retaining a bit more creative control on their shows. I think what I love about the Braun TV group is we're kind of like a, a little engine that could. You know, we started out of an idea that I pitched to Aaron in 2016, and uh, he really gave me the freedom and latitude to go out and build it. And I am very grateful to Aaron and Brenda for the ability to do that. And I think it took great faith in the plan and obviously great capital partners that allowed us to do that. So I think the story for Braun TV being created out of such auspicious measures and then to kind of turn into this little powerhouse of a group, uh, not just on the production side and the financing side, but I really want to endorse the creative team as well, of which I consider myself a part of. But I think we've not just made shows, but we've made really high quality shows. And I think that is um, something that I'm 
really proud of. So I, I would encourage just in terms of like reporting on the group uh, that it also be flagged just how impressive the quality of the shows that we've made, not just the quantity of the shows. And that we did it on kind of a shoestring in a way as a group that kind of was formed out of an idea and, you know, against great odds. So that was, uh, that's one of our greatest attributes, I think. Just quickly, what was the pitch that you gave to Aaron in 2016? It, well, you know, I just was getting to know Aaron and I was actually his lawyer uh, prior to coming in-house. And I, I had a history of uh, knowledge of the international television co-production market. And uh, he flew me to Vancouver in 2016 for the board meeting then. And he just pulled me aside and said, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I said, well, I have this kind of secret, not so secret history of learning about international television co-productions. I had flown myself around the world for the last 10 years going to the MIPS and Mia's and whatnot, just to really learn the business. And he said, well, go find me one. And I was like, really? He's like, yep, go find me uh, some international co-productions. And within a few months, I was on a plane to Paris and I was closing the rights deal for Call My Agent to adapt that uh, into the English language. And that then started the, the trend of finding more shows to make in Europe. And that's when uh, we discovered Kin and The Defeated was pitched to me at MIPCOM. And that dirty black bag was pitched to me on a trip to Italy. I mean, it just it just kind of stemmed from that first conversation with Aaron. And then, you know, you just kind of hit the street and get out there and start talking to people. And you realize that if you find the right project with the model that we tested out on The Defeated, we actually had an opportunity to, to do something really special. And yeah, so that was the conversation. David Davoli speaking with Jordan Pinto. Now over to Channel 21 International Magazine editor Nico Franks to introduce our next interview. Profiled The Black Man, which launched over the weekend on Discovery Plus, examines the origins of widespread stereotypes that have impacted the lives of black men in America for centuries. Produced by A. Smith & Co. Productions with the Oprah Winfrey Network, the four-part docuseries aims to show the difficulties black men have faced both in the past and present day, while also highlighting and celebrating their triumphs and resilience with a mixture of historical footage, real-life testimony and commentary from an array of renowned thought leaders. I spoke to one of the show's executive producers, Kristen V. Carter, about the origins of the docuseries, why she hopes the show will change the way people interact with black men in their day-to-day -day lives, as well as her role as head of community engagement and career development for Who You Know, a production resource group for professionals of colour. Two years ago, the creator Trell Thomas created this platform, this show, because he wanted to see positive images of black men. Uh, he partnered with Tina Knowles Lawson, and I joined the team in July of 2021 once the show was greenlit. And the purpose of this show is really to illuminate the truths about Black men. I think so often people have perceived Black men to be the different stereotypes that we talk about in the series. They perceive them to be dangerous, absent fathers, uh, emotionally unavailable, and, uh, and all of those things. And we wanted to make sure to shine a light on the truth behind what is really going on. So in the series, we take a look at the history of the stereotype and give it context, and then also break it down, sharing the truth and statistics about it. And then we hear from positive Black men who are doing amazing things. We do profile pieces on them, as well as hear, us, hear from celebrity commentators who give their own perspective about their experiences with the stereotype. So just wanted to give you a full-fledged 
view overview of the entire series and why we decided to do it. We definitely want to shed light and educate people on the truth of Black men. The series is a four-part docu-series and is broken down into four episodes because we are addressing four specific stereotypes. We wanted to make sure to give context and also a thorough explanation and discussion behind each stereotype. So that's why every episode is its own specific stereotype. Now within the episodes, we also cover different sub myths. So, you know, inside of the stereotypes, there's all these other myths and thoughts that we actually we're able to address within the show. So um, I'm looking forward to everybody taking a look. Again, the four episodes are Black Men Are Dangerous, Black Men Are Absent Fathers, Black Men Devalue Black Women, and then Black Men Don't Cry. So we wanted to get different aspects of different stereotypes that are in the community. And as you'll see, each episode has its own feel and its own aesthetic. You know, Black Men Are Dangerous, I believe, is our most intense episode just in terms of giving some hardcore facts behind, you know, police brutality and racial injustice. And then as we move on, we get into a little bit more of the emotions uh, of Black men and different situations and scenarios that they go through. I signed on to this project in July of 2021 after the show was greenlit, and it has been a true labor of love to craft this series. This is a series that's never been done before, and so we wanted to make sure to give life to different aspects. And what I mean by that is showing the historical perspective, also showing present day how we are debunking these stereotypes in real time, as well as showing real-time stories of Black men. So we wanted to give like a full sort of palette for viewers. And so that takes quite some time to craft and, and piece together and figure things out. You know, our team is multicultural and we wanted to make sure that we educate and also inform. We didn't want to ostracize any audiences. We wanted to make sure that all races can take a look at this, can think about how they have interacted with Black men and also can be a part of not only the conversation, but also be a part of the change inside of our society too. And you mentioned educating and informing there. And to, those are two things that are, are, are more often associated with public broadcasters. Obviously, this is on Discovery Plus, And I know you can't speak for them, but why do you think they gravitated towards this project? Discovery Plus gravitated towards this series as part of its Black Voices campaign. So we're really, really excited to be a part of their Black History Month programming, but more so have an opportunity to educate, inspire, uplift, and do all of that. So I think the Discovery Plus is really excited to be a part of it um, just for those reasons. To what extent do you think TV has been responsible for kind of perpetuating some of those stereotypes? Media has definitely had a hand in perpetuating the stereotypes. And that's something that we speak about actually in the episodes. We speak wholeheartedly and honestly about what we feel are the aspects that have kept these stereotypes alive for centuries. Um, and so I definitely think so. I mean, news reports and the way that news can sometimes be a bit skewed, if I'm being honest, in regards to what happens when there's a Black perpetrator of violence and things like that. I believe that they get harsher articles, they get harsher descriptions versus other people that are non-Black. So I definitely think that, and it's something that we address head on in the series. And tell me about the use of so historical footage and also real life testimony. Profile the Black Man is made up of historical context as well as testimonies. And we wanted to make sure to give a very candid look at these stereotypes when we think about it, 
we're in conversation about these stereotypes all the time, whether we realize it or not, you know? And so we wanted to make sure to go back to the root of these stereotypes. When did these thoughts, when did these images, when did these descriptions start getting placed on black men and how has it permeated the culture? And then how can we shift the narrative now? So we wanted to make sure to give pretty much like a past, present, future of it all. And it was very, very important to get that blend right. You know, I think that all of us, all the executives on the team, the producers on the team, we just had a lot of love and a lot of heart when it came to making sure that we get that blend just perfect so that viewers will not only be thoughtful, but also will be uh, turned on to the matter. We want to make sure that people are inspired to be a part of the conversation and that they really think about the ways that these stereotypes have informed them and and misinformed them and how they can create a different opinion for themselves and a different narrative too. The biggest way that we decided to celebrate Black men was to share stories of Black men, the everyday men who are doing positive and amazing things. So each episode has three profile pieces inside the episode where they, the Black men themselves, address the stereotype, but also share their life experiences. So inside the first episode, you'll hear from Leon Ford. He experienced a situation in 2012 that really reshaped his life, and he has gone on to work with the community around creating solutions, you know, in regards to the community and police. We also have Black Bread Co., which is a Chicago company with three best friends who created this company, and then also Black Menswear, which is another entrepreneur who is changing the face of Black male fashion and imagery. So we wanted to make sure that we told stories of Black men that were diverse and that were not all the same story. You know, Black men are not a monolith, and that's something that we have uh, really stood for throughout creating this series. So we wanted to tell the stories of different types of Black men and their experiences and shine a light on the truth behind their lives. I definitely think that class plays into the stereotypes, but I will say nine times out of 10, most Black men, no matter what class they're a part of, have experienced some type of stereotyping or some type of labeling. And so we wanted to make sure to shine a light on a couple of stereotypes that we felt were pervasive across all classes, to be honest with you. So hopefully we're able to, you know, shine a light for people and educate people and let folks know that no matter what class Black men have been in, Um, they probably have faced these stereotypes and hopefully people will engage with them differently because of that. Since the summer of 2020, when there was that huge reckoning in the media and through all sections of society, and in, in the wake of that, there were lots of initiatives from various media companies. From your perspective, are you seeing a noticeable change? I think the situations that happened in 2020 have definitely awakened the community. I would say we still have a lot of work to do, but I would say that this is the time that people of all communities are engaging with the subject matter differently, are engaging with race and culture and class and gender very differently. And so I think that this show is hitting at the perfect time for people to not only watch it, but to engage it in their lives. That's the one thing that's really, really important. It's one thing to watch a show, but it's another thing to think about, oh, wow, How have I interacted with Black men? How have I interacted with the world? You know, and in what ways can I shift how I think about Black men, how I think about other people? Because as as we keep going, it's not just about Black men. It's about how we all treat each other. And so this is, I think, one of those talking pieces 
that will get us really thinking about how we are loving on each other as a community and as a whole. There's a resource, a production resource group, Hugh, you know? Yes. So is yes. that active? And then, yes. so tell me a bit about your work there. So Hugh, you know, is a production resource group of color. We have over 17,000 members across the world. And I'm the head of community engagement. And I am just so elated to have this platform and this space for young people, professionals of all um, professionals around the world to really engage and to really um, be empowered. So we focus on employment, we focus on mentorship and also community. So I'm really, really excited about just all the initiatives that we've continued to do and all that we've done since 2020. We've been in, we've been established since 2017, but I will definitely say since 2020, we've been able to have diversity workshops with corporate companies and really engage the conversation differently. Uh, so I'm really, really excited about the work that we're doing. I think there was a fear that a lot of the announcements and statements and mm-hmm. initiatives by corporate companies, you know, since 2020, you know, were potentially just talking the talk rather right. than walking the walk. Right. Have you seen evidence that that hasn't been the case? I definitely have seen changes inside entertainment and other sectors. I do think that we have more to do in terms of just a community as a whole. I want all of us to think about how we engage with the, with each other, not just from a racial standpoint, but also gender and also disability as well. I think there's a lot of opportunity right now to see each other as each other. And what that means is seeing the equality in each other, seeing that, you know, we don't always need a mentorship program for diverse voices. Diverse voices are at the top of their classes as well. And that's what I really want everybody to know. So um, I'm excited to continue to share that through here, you know, and also through my own individual work as well. I definitely think that corporations are part of the conversation now, but I really want to empower and employ everybody to uh, think differently about mentorship and think differently about how they're engaging with employment. And what that means is dealing with people of diverse races doesn't mean that you always have to start from the bottom. I think that there is a thought that there needs to be mentorship to bring people of color or people of disability or people or female uh, professionals in when there are all of us are at the top of our class. There's a lot of people at the top of their class. And so I just want corporations to look for great talent, no matter if they need to train them or also if they need to find someone at a senior level. So I really hope that people continue to engage with each other again, no matter if it's race, class, gender, or ability, that they are able to really see the greatness in the people that they are employing. Are you hoping so that there, there may be a follow-up series focusing on Black women? Wow, that's a great question. So um, I really do. Uh, <laughs> I hope that there is uh, a follow-up for other classes and other races as well. Um, now, I think that there's a lot of programs for Black women. So of course, I want to see something for Black women. But I also want to see shows for other ethnicities as well. So I'm glad that we're doing something on Black men because that's something I haven't seen before. And I want to see more programming maybe around, you know, our Latino brothers and sisters or Asian brothers and sisters. You know, I would love for us to really engage not just Black culture and community, but also other races and ethnicities as well. Kristen V. Carter speaking with Nico Franks. 
Kilkenny-based animation company Lighthouse Studios was set up five years ago as a joint venture between Ireland's Cartoon Saloon and Canada's Mercury Filmworks. The studio has produced El Defo for Apple TV+, as well as working on titles including Little Ellen for HBO Max and Amazon's Bug Diaries. Lighthouse Managing Director Claire Finn spoke to Carolina Kaminska about its relationship with big streamers, moving into adult animation, the challenges posed by the pandemic and plans for its own originals. My name is Claire Finn and I'm the Managing Director and I also exec produce across the shows. And Lighthouse Studios, I like to think of it myself a little bit as sort of the love child between two quite well-known parents. And that's Cartoon Saloon, uh, you know, Oscar nominated for Wolf Focus and Breadwinner, based also here in Kilkenny. And then Mercury Filmworks, who are based in Ottawa. And it actually was sort of the brainchild of Clint Eland, who was the studio head and founder of, of Mercury. And he wanted to set up a European base. And so he kind of looked mainland Europe, UK, and he came in contact with the IDA, which is the Industrial Development Agency of Ireland. And they were incredibly instrumental in helping him bring Lighthouse and set it up in Ireland. And it was really, though, then when he met sort of Paul Young and Jerry Sheeran from Cartoon Saloon that he decided on Kilkenny, which is outside the main hub, a bit like the way Mercury is set up. So that really appeals to him, you know. And um, so we're about an hour and a half from Dublin. And I think what appealed was setting up sort of an animation hub in Kilkenny. You know, a lot of our crew is from overseas, about 70 percent. So, you know, attracting talent to a smaller city, not the main hub, like to be able to keep people for longer terms and maybe switch through crews. That was one of the main ideas that it was sort of set up here. So that's that's the reason. And we're five years old this this week. So we're, we're still reasonably young. Yes, happy birthday. And you've got some big names attached to your work. You've you've produced for Netflix, uh, Apple TV+, Amazon Prime, HBO Max. Um, so do you want to tell us about the projects that you've animated for them? Sure thing. So when I, um, the first project that was kind of done was called The Bug Diaries, and it was done sort of design to delivery. And um, so it was a service uh, job for um, yeah, Amazon, as I said. And that was just finishing as I started. And then we did sort of um, season two layout to lock picture in conjunction with Mercury, our parent. Um, that was also for Amazon Prime. And when I came in, one of the, the things I did was also actually um, really sort of set up the identity of Lighthouse so that we were totally independent from the two parents, if you like. And we did a test for Netflix for the Cuphead show and we, we won that. So we, that was a huge huge big bonus for such a young studio um and the crew i actually hadn't hadn't heard of the game it's based on a game and the crew were just so ecstatic and excited to work on it and that's about to drop in about another week and i think like the the trailer's already got about 10 million views on it so that flysher sort of 30s animation but with a contemporary sort of twist so it's really high end it's been you know quite challenging for us as a young studio but um the work looks amazing so we're super happy with it El Defa, which is the project we did for Apple TV Plus. And our head creative, Jilly Fogg, she had fell, fallen in love with this book and we had sort of done a pitch for it. And at the same time, Tara Sorensen, who's the head of kids in, in Apple, had uh, just optioned the rights for it. So it was sort of a natural fit that we would do it. And we worked very closely with Cece, who's the author on it, and who also wrote and exec produced on it alongside Will McRobb. And we did everything on that, you know, in conjunction with Apple. So super proud of that. And it's just been nominated um, for Prix Jeunesse. So we're, 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 we're hoping that will garner some awards. And it's it's based on the um, story of Cece Bell, who became deaf at four through meningitis. So 
that's um, a really exciting project. And Little Ellen was the one that we did for HBO. And that's based on the life of Ellen DeGeneres. And that, again, is sort of designed delivery. Um, and um, or beg, beg your pardon, that one is layered to love picture. And um, again, it's quite different to the other two in terms of style. And I think one of our things that we really want to, which we've created really our strategy around is having quite a broad slate. So no particular age range or style or genre. We want to explore everything within the 2D 2D range of potentially two and a half D, as they say, you know, with a bit of CG thrown in. And yeah, so they're the kind of projects at the moment. We, we also um, pitched a show which has been picked up and it, we're currently in that sort of pre-development phase. Um, and that's also with, with Apple. Um, yeah, that, that's what we've done so far on those, those big ones. And of course, we worked on Bob's, which I think you're probably going to ask me about. Yeah, yeah. Um, before before I ask you about that, um, I wanted to ask you what it's like working with these big streamers like Netflix and Apple. How have you found it? Yeah, it's 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 interesting in terms of working with those very high end sort of what we call production partners, or one might call them clients. You know, I've I've that's kind of I've always done that in in most of the career that I've worked on. I've come from live action, so animation actually was quite new to me. And what's interesting, I think, about it is that in terms of their animation studios and setup, they're almost slightly younger than Lighthouse, almost. You know, because they they've really only started to set up their studios, etc. In contrast with WB, who obviously you know have been around for a long time, their team is well established. So it's been actually really interesting from my point of view having those high level chats with the execs in both studios as they determine their approach and we determine our approach and everybody kind of gets, okay, well, oh, we'll try this, we'll try that. What way do we go forward, you know, to build our studios uh, to create content in the next uh, sort of few years? And so it's been interesting, you know, along those lines, both of them really are pushing the envelope, but in maybe potentially slightly different ways. And, you know, Netflix, that's fantastic with the amount of voices that they share globally, you know, the, the stories that they tell. And Apple obviously is such a high end, you know, they really push for really um, refined projects, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's been it's been interesting, challenging. I mean, but I think that both um, are very open that the conversation and dialogue has been very open the whole way through whenever we've kind of all hit sort of certain challenges that we need to. OK, well, how do we actually take this forward? So. I would say all in all, it's been fantastic. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's hard work, but it's great. <laughs> the result is great. And I think, you know, that, that's what that's what we're working for, I suppose. Um, and, and you've also ventured into adult animation with the Bob's Burgers film, which you um, briefly mentioned earlier. Um, so what has that been like and how has animating a project for an, an animated project for adults differed to children? Yeah, you know, we worked on that with Mercury, our parent, and they are the sort of producer records. So we did a percentage of the layout to Locked Picture and then we took over and worked directly with Bento slash Fox slash Disney on the uh, retakes on the lip sync, uh, ADR, etc. In terms of, you know, the actual, it's a feature animation so that the level is, is, is more detailed um you know the crew love working on 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 adult animation i mean it's it's i missed the day that they actually ran the animatics so i keep seeing all small bits of it and i'm not quite sure which order the story goes in because it's really funny so can't wait to see it yeah i think that the difference only is the content you know um and some crew absolutely love the adult stuff and some crew i i was quite interested in this really like preschool or sort of you know young young adult animation but I think that the difference only in this was that's feature. So, th so the level of quality is, is higher. So you have to take longer over, over, you know, it's kind of frame by frame. It's going to be in a bigger space. 
But yeah, I mean, we loved it actually. We loved it and, and we'll, we will hope to do more because of adult animation. Do you think you'll still be predominantly for children or, or how do you think you'll sort of work out that balance? I think that we will, yeah, we'll probably have a balance if we were doing, say, say five projects, three would be kids, two would be adult, or maybe one would be family and one would be adult. It sort of really sort of depends on what's kind of going on at, at any one time. I think that, uh, yeah, we just um, optioned uh, uh, the rights to a book and we're just sort of working on that at the moment. Um, we're just about to hire also a development producer to run our develop original slate. So we're really sort of jumping into that uh, uh, original space. Um, but we will primarily still also be a service studio and and you know uh, so we will be able to do both and that is that is deliberately our, our strategy but we have optioned a fairly gritty novel set at sort of the turn of the century in Ireland this century when Ireland for the first time really got money if you like because the Celtic Tiger happened we had people coming into Ireland who were not from Ireland so we had some of those interesting issues that happened around that and we had people returning to Ireland that had ne- hadn't you know had, had bringing back new ideas and new thoughts and for the first time, you know, I think officially Ireland was called a third world country and now it suddenly became a first world country. We had the influx also of all the tech giants, etc. So it's a very interesting period in Irish history. So it's quite a gritty story set in and around that sort of setting. So once we dot those eyes on that contract, we will be sharing it more with the world. So and then once we get a development producer, that producer will take that along. We're also talking to we're in talks with, you know, um, again, some of the commissioners, you know, Disney, um, Sony, etc. And and one or two of those shows are potentially adult also. So, yeah, we, we, we definitely again, we're trying to I think one of the big things about being based in Kenny is we need to attract we, we, most of our crew or a lot of our crew from overseas. And in order to attract also senior talent, you need to have quite a broad range of of slate, you know, and of projects that really appeal to different people, because that is one way to sort of um, bring in and keep people here also for a longer period of time, you know. And so with your move into originals that you mentioned, what what is your strategy there? And, and can you talk about what you might have in the pipeline already? Well, I suppose our strategy at the moment is firstly getting this development producer on board, because it's definitely, you know, over the last year, which has been obviously challenging for the world, but it has been very challenging, I think, working outside of the studio. I really think to build culture, you have to be in the studio. We're all working on the same painting. So even if you work incredibly well on your own outside, the result is, does it all fit in this <laughs> this same sort of um, piece of, of art? And once we get this person on board, we will have our full complement, I think, of, of, the, of the people leading the studio. So I'm, I'm very happy about that. And we had we put out a pitch last year to um, the crew. We we ran a development workshop. We invited anyone in the crew who was interested to take it, and they came along. And we invited them then to come and pitch a short film. And from that, we narrowed it down from twenty eight pitches to, t- to three, which they further developed with the producer overseas. And we've chosen one, and that will be the first project that the development producer will take alongside this other adult animation novel. And from there, we have some other things in the that we're interested in or people have sent in or we're going to throw it out potentially to crew like um, later in the year or next year to see if we create some of our own original IP. So it'll be sort of, you know, there'll be a few things. Our own original IP, I know that Jilly is our head creative and a creator herself is working on a project. There'll be... Um, potentially optioning some books, you know, that we we find interesting. We one of our crew who is a really knows every graphic novel and comic made to, and known to any human. 
And so we, we, we'll we'll just take some time, I think, to, to decide what is worth sort of like investing our time on. And again, we'll keep it broad. There'll be, you know, not 10 of the same thing. It'll be a broad uh, representation of what's going on. Um, like we've nothing in sci-fi at the moment or, you know, that kind of thing. Also, it's sort of taking stock of what's going on in the industry. It's moved and changed so much even over the past three years, even with, you know, as soon as it hit that everyone was like, oh, my gosh, animation, adult animation, people is watching animation. COVID hit and 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 you can see that there's definitely been a little bit of a twist and turn going on of like, okay, well, nobody's quite sure, at least what I'm seeing and hearing as to how that's kind of falling out. So I guess we'll just go on with what we know and what we have immediately and we'll start exploring what's out there to see what we want to take forward. You also recently hired Michael Downey as talent management director. So do you want to talk a bit about that hire? Absolutely. I mean, I've lived overseas for a long time and for me, creative is about having a really mixture of people with different points of view. And you can sit down at a table and talk about bread. And if you have people from 10 different countries, you'll get a really interesting discussion. And, you know, there, there is a war that's that they're talking about now, the war for talent. But um, having a talent person who really is out there talking to not just the colleges, but also to senior people, to, you know, people in the industry or, or, or you know, interested in potentially moving, etc., is is so important. As I said, most of our crew are from overseas because there is a talent shortage here. And I'm actually involved, I'm on the board of the Animation Ireland uh, team, and we're doing a, a skills gap analysis right now around this issue, if you like. And so it's very helpful to have Michael, who knows all the movers and shakers in Ireland, and then oversees the colleges, etc., to be able to point us in directions and start conversations now that might only come to fruition in a year or two years when we have that development piece that we're working on ready, because it is hard to get especially senior people to move to a small city, you know. So for that reason, it's hugely valuable to have him, you know, helping us out on that because you need to have somebody on it, I think, all the time looking at who's interested in making the moves because that's that's who's driving the studio is the talent and the people that you hire, you know, and also just understanding the, the people that we have here, how to build that culture. You know, again, as I said, a lot of them are coming from overseas and you need to create more of a holistic environment for them. And and we have a learning and development um, specialist also on our team. How do we, you know, train people uh, going forward, et cetera. So we're really, really looking at, at all that piece around talent in quite a broad uh, perspective, I suppose. Hugely important, I think. So you've obviously got a lot going on, um, but what would you say are the company's core goals and ambitions for the foreseeable future? And where do you hope to be in the next three to five years? Well, in the last years, I was saying it was quite challenging um, just because everybody was in many different countries, many different languages, different time zones, etc. So the first thing is getting people back into the studio as much as possible. We've done quite a nice piece on the studio and we're based in actually um, what looks like Hogwarts to all intents and purposes. It's an old seminary. <laughs> so, and actually, a bit of Hogwarts uh, uh, fan fan stuff. Um, Ray Fines did his last year of high school in this school, so uh, it's also kind of kind of cool, especially for the crew and for the story overseas. Um, so, definitely want to bring people back in to really, you know, again, as I said, we've been working very much under the hood, looking at what is our approach, how do we go forward, and now I think with the development producer, we have all the, the relevant relevant team to, to, to create that. There's a lot of strategies being created, how do we work together, how do we do R&D, etc. So, the next projects that we bring in, we will, as I said, stay with like, you know, if we're looking at, say, five projects, five to six, seven projects, 
you know, the core of those will be commissioned, you know, high end, probably soup to nuts, as they say, and then having some part using our own uh, uh, IP or developing our own IP or using or, or finding some books to option and, and develop those further. We may also consider a co-production. So that's also on the table. I think that is what we, in the next three years, that is what we're going to really stabilize, how we do things, what the Lighthouse approach is, and then put that into practice across our, both our commissioned and the work we want to do in our in the own IP section. I'm not sure about five years because knowing how things change, who knows what we do then. We're a young studio where, you know, it's incredibly vibrant. I just can't wait to get back in the studio with all the crew. And, and, and you know, we do liaison culturally, especially with Cartoon Saloon. And being in a small city, it's fantastic to have so many nationalities all bouncing around. And, and, and you know, just to get that vibe back, I think, is so important. Um, and we've lots of exciting potential work coming up. So we're, we're in discussions for many different things. So, yeah, I just think it's it's really good time. It's I think it's we've had to hold fast, you know, and hold steady. And, and, you know, now that we've seen some of the work come out because animation takes so long, that's a huge boon to the crew. And and yeah, just yeah, looking forward to just going forward, really, and having and getting back out there, meeting people at, at events, you know, like that is the other thing that I think is crucially needed, you know. Coming out of the pandemic, what do you think will be the biggest challenges for animation now? I mean, you know, during the pandemic, it was, you know, animation had a much better time of it than live action did. You know, remote working was a lot easier and so on. But, you know, looking ahead now, what what do you see as being the sort of the biggest, biggest challenges? I think it's probably that talent piece, you know, for people, it's finding talent. And it is slightly tricky, as I said, because I think, you know, people, you know, will want to work potentially hybrid but it will be hard to do that if you're on if you're like an animator or a rigger or a compositor because it's almost easier to work fully at home or fully in the studio unless you've got a total setup that mimics it also security around content is you know is increasingly challenging so I think it will be getting people back into the studio and attracting talent to to your studio you know um that's that's probably the the thing and and just I do think those people it, it just will take a little bit of time and you know that's the center where where it's where it's happening so I think people will be attracted but it, it will be tough I think I think it will be tough to to get back in there and do it you know Claire Finn speaking with C21 Kids editor Carolina Kaminska. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.